Warning, me time and murder is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to part two of the murder of James Bolger. I am still drinking my coffee and I am still drawing this portrait of James Bolger for my me time. Let's recap. In part one, we covered a very normal day turned horrific. Two-year-old James Bolger was abducted by a pair of 10-year-olds, Robert Thompson and John Venables. The boys dragged James around Liverpool for hours before torturing and murdering him, leaving his little body on the railway tracks to be found, hoping they could get away with it hoping that James's death would be ruled an accident. James Bulger's parents have made public appeals for information and for the boys to come forward. They're hoping that James, hoping that James is still alive. So after the CCTV footage was released to the public, at home, Robert's mum actually questioned him. She asked him, is that you on the videotape, son? Robert replied, no, I had nothing to do with that. Later, a makeshift memorial was created where James's wee body was found at the railway. As if to prove his point, Robert bought a single flower and took it to James's memorial site. When he got home, he said to his mother, Why would I take a flower to the baby if I had killed him? Also at home, John showed an intense fascination, obsession, interest with the case. He said to his mother, if he ever seen those lads, he would kick their heads in. Maybe you should kick your own head in. Wanker. John's father asked him about the blue paint on his coat sleeve. John said, Robert threw blue paint at me. Police checked Friday's absentee lists from schools and held conferences reassuring the public that they were working hard to find who had done this to James Bulger. Reams of reports came in, even parents suspecting their own boys. But it was when an anonymous call from a woman that police had their break. She told police that her friend's son named her friend's son named John had skipped school on Friday with his friend Robert and had returned home with blue paint on his sleeve. Investigators decided they had better bring in John and Robert for questioning. Six days after the murder, at 7.30 in the morning, February 18th, four police officers arrived on the Thompson's front door with a search warrant. Robert began to cry. They took his clothes and shoes. His shoes still had James's blood on them. When they came for John Venables, officers took, officers took John's mustard yellow jacket. It was splattered with blue paint and had a little blue hand on the sleeve. John grabbed his mother. He said, I don't want to go to prison, Mum. I didn't kill the baby. 
he cried, saying it was Robert. It was Robert was always getting him into trouble. The young boys were terrified and fascinated by police procedures. Police took fingerprints, blood, hair and fingernail samples from both boys. Then they were interviewed in separate police stations. Robert interview. Robert Thompson was interviewed the day he was arrested. Accompanied by his mother and legal representation, they asked Robert if he knew the difference between truth and lies. He said he did, but lie, he did. Now, throughout his interview, he was mostly calm and sometimes like argumentative, um, but sometimes he would respond in like a bratty, childish way. He would say, well, I was there and you weren't. Or, well, that's what you think. I remember being 10. Oh, my. It's bad because it's so serious. It's not like, you know, he's broke a vase or something or broke a window. It's much more serious. Robert admitted that he and John skipped school on Friday and went to the Strand Shopping Centre. Trying to sound like a witness and not a suspect, Robert gave details. Robert actually claimed that he saw James with his mother in the shopping centre on that day while he and John were playing with the soldier on the escalator. This struck the investigators as very odd. Like, why would you recognise some random two-year-old and his mother? Robert then claimed that they left the shopping centre, went to the library before going home. It seemed like a very boring day off school. Not very adventurous, eh? During a break, both invest... During a break, both... During a break, both investigative teams conferred. In the other interview, John said he and Robert did not go to the shopping centre. So detectives asked Robert, why would John say he didn't go to the shopping centre? Robert began to crack. Robert suggested that perhaps John did make the baby follow them and lost him somewhere. But there was no way for Robert to know because Robert never once looked behind his shoulder. So he couldn't tell if there was a baby there. Robert went on and on, trying to pin the murder solely on his friend. He pointed out to the investigators that in the papers, in that screenshot, in the video capture, it's John holding baby James's hand. Not Robert. Police suspected that Robert was fake crying, as he never had any tears, and he could stop crying instantly. The next morning, the police finally had a breakthrough. Robert told police that John was in a crazy killing frenzy. He was out of control, hitting the baby with batteries, sticks, stones, bricks, and a big metal pole thing. Apparently, all the time, Robert was trying to pull John away, screaming at him to stop. Astounded, the detectives asked Robert, why did John do all these things? Robert said, I don't know. 
Robert's mother sat there in disbelief. She asked him, why did you bring that rose to baby James's memorial? Robert replied, because then baby James knows that I tried to help him up there and I'm thinking of him now. Robert also expressed fear about being haunted after the murder. He thought baby James was going to haunt him. Throughout the interviews, Robert was preoccupied that John was going to get off. He begged the officers to please call their teacher and ask the teacher which one of them is the worst. If you ask her, she'll tell you it's John. John is the worst out of the two of us. Now this is creepy. <laughs> Robert went on to argue about why he would kill, why would he kill the baby? Robert has a little brother and so he says to the cops, why would I want to kill him when I've got a baby of my own? If I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill my own, wouldn't I? It is sick, but I can imagine him saying that in little Scouse accent. Uh, like, he's so argumentative. Like, it's quite smart thinking. It's quite smart. 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 It's quite intelligent arguments from a 10-year-old. Like, the detective saved the most difficult questions for the end. James had some mutilation to his genitals and police believed that either one or both of the boys had inserted batteries into James's anus. These questions upset Robert the most. When they asked him who removed James's trousers and underwear, Robert began to cry and he shouted at them, shouting that he wasn't a pervert. Towards the end of the interviews, Robert said that it was John who covered up baby James's head with bricks. But Robert said he only put on one brick on the head because he wanted to stop the bleeding. The presence of his parents upset John. He was hysterical and intimidated by the investigators. Often so much he was unable to speak. So detectives asked them to reassure John that they would still love him no matter what. This did help John to open up and admit to his participation. And like Robert, John also blamed his friend. According to John, Robert was the bad one, the troublemaker. And John avoided hanging out with Robert and talking to him at school. But police noticed that John was like enthusiastically talking about Robert. John would talk about how Robert would skip school and how they would go stealing together, shoplifting, doing fun, exciting, naughty, th naughty things. Being Robert's friend was exciting to John. He said he would be too scared to do these things on his own. John said it was Robert's idea to skip school that day where they did not go to the Strand shopping centre. Later, when John heard that Robert had admitted to going to the shopping centre, John roared and cried, saying that Robert was lying. At one point, John's mother loses the rag and screams at John, saying to her boy, If I would have known all this now, John, 
I would have had you down to the police station right away. Instead of them banging on my front door and making a show of me in front of the street. I think there's more pressing matters at hand than you being embarrassed. Love. The next day, investigators confronted John with more of Robert's confession and version of events. John screamed over and over. I never killed him, Mum. We took him and left him in the canal. Mum, that is all. Police then asked, then how did then how did you get the baby from the Strand shopping centre to the canal? He was just walking around on his own, John claimed. Then John realised he was contradicting himself and the truth was coming out. He became more distressed. The detectives believed that John wanted to tell the truth, but he was too scared by what his mother would think. The Venables reassured John again that they would love him no matter what and urged him to tell the truth. John crawled into his mother's lap and sobbed. He said, I did kill him. What about his mum? Will you tell her I'm sorry? Finally, John had admitted it and the truth came out. John said that Robert stole the paint from a toy store in the Strand Shopping Centre. They saw a child and Robert said, let's get this kid lost. This was the first toddler they tried to kidnap, whose mother found him and grabbed him before the boys could take him away. Then they saw James in front of the butcher shop. John confessed that he walked toward the child and took him by the hand. But it was Robert's idea to kill him, according to John. As they walked around, Robert and John contemplated trying to find James's mother and bringing him back. But then Robert had an idea, maybe we should throw him in the canal. Robert tried to get the toddler to lean into the canal and fall. But James wouldn't go close enough and he didn't fall in. Robert then picked up James and threw him on the ground. But the closer the story came to getting to the murder, the more John was distressed. John said he didn't want to talk about the worst bit. When John was finally willing to talk about the worst bit, he blamed Robert for the violence. For all of the violence. When asked who threw the bricks, John said Robert did. And John said he only threw teeny tiny little stones. And only at his arms, never at the head. And that he deliberately tried to miss. According to John, Robert was the one who threw the paint in James's eye, as well as threw a heavy brick at James's head. Apparently, James screamed and fell back onto the ground, but stood back up again. John tried to pull Robert away, and James kept getting back up. Robert screamed at him to stay down. Robert was shouting, teasing, and calling James bad names. After Robert hit him with the iron bar, James fell on his stomach on the railway track. He also said it was Robert who pulled James's underwear off, but he admitted to helping take off the shoes. But when the subject of the batteries came up, John became hysterical again and started to cry. I didn't know anything about what Robert was doing with the batteries. When asked if Robert did anything else, to James's genitals, 
John grew very upset and started to punch his father who was sitting next to him. By Saturday, there was enough to prosecute the boys. They were charged with abduction, murder and the attempted abduction of the other boy. John cried, but Robert responded, it was John that done that. Both boys were detained until their trial when they would undergo psychological evaluation and testing. John's brother, John's brother and sister both had learning disabilities, both at special needs schools. The Venables had a very unstable family. The parents would repeatedly split up and get back together, leading to a very unstable home life for the kids. John's parents believed that he was a good boy, but just very hyper. They also believed that John was bullied by other kids and was being bullied by Robert. John was medically and psychologically evaluated before the trial. The doctor found no disability, mental illness or brain damage. John understood right from wrong and he understood the permanence of death. John was easily distressed when talking about the murder and he was experiencing a lot of flashbacks and PTSD from the crime he had committed as well as rescue fantasies and dreams where he would save baby James and return James safely to his mother. But in all they deemed that John was fit to stand trial. When Robert was psychologically evaluated, he reenacted the murder scene with dolls, portraying the John doll beating the baby James doll senseless and Robert doll holding John back. However, Robert was totally unable to reenact the sexual element of the crime if there was a sexual element, but it's quite likely there was. Robert became very angry and very defensive when it came to anything about that. Robert grew up in a very violent household. His father beat his mother and his mother beat the kids. And instead of the kids teaming up together, the kids beat on each other. Eventually his father up and left, which led his mother into a drinking problem. Robert's mother's drinking problem was a sore point for him and he was very defensive of her drinking. Robert had a reoccurring nightmare in which he was chasing someone running into the street and then he would be struck by a car. Like what an awful nightmare. Oh, I used to have a nightmare when I was a child that I was on the top of a hill and I was in a car and I didn't know how to drive, I was a child, and the car was rolling down the hill full speed and I was trying to drive it and then like it would crash and I would wake up. I had this nightmare like all the time. It was like, I can remember it. It was like we were in San Francisco or something. It was a really steep hill. Anyway, in the end, the psychological report reported that Robert was above average intelligence and exhibited no signs of mental illness, depression, 
brain damage, nothing like that. He too was displaying signs of PTSD, but was fit to stand trial. Which brings us to the trial. Around 500 protesters gathered outside the court during the boys' initial court appearances. The Venables and Thompsons were forced to flee their home and assume new identities. Due to the barrage of threats and angry mobs outside their house. Meanwhile, John and Robert were housed in secure locations apart from each other. They also presumed false identities for their own safety and they pretended to be older and convicted of different crimes. On the 1st of November 1993, the trial began. The boys would be tried together and both pleaded not guilty. Both were still blaming each other. In order for the boys to see above the court railings, a special little ledge seat, booster seat, had to be specially built for them. That's how small they were. The judge ruled that the boys should be known as child A, Robert, and child B, John. There they are in the paper. At this point, nobody knew the boys' names. Except obviously the, bo- the people who knew them. But on a whole, nobody knew their names yet. At the trial, Robert had no family present. <gasps> He either stared straight ahead or up at the ceiling, kicked off his shoes and yawned. He showed very little emotion. Onlookers assumed that Robert was the guilty one. John, on the other hand, he won some sympathy with the court observers. He seemed quite anxious and was always looking back at his mother for support. The Bulger family attended every day, except for Denise who was seven months pregnant. Oh, this poor woman. Can you imagine? You've lost your first baby, stillborn, and now your second baby has been brutally murdered. And you're on your third baby, and you have to go through all of this. The media, the media vultures, the trial, the the youngness of the criminals, like this poor woman, like, like, what a life, like, and she's only like 25 or something. Robert's defence attorney argued that a fair trial was impossible due to the media coverage. Inflammatory papers were calling the boys evil, demons, monsters, which they fucking are. He also requested that two of the photos that depicted James's head be removed from the trial as it could distress the jury. Um, Although he might be just trying to get rid of these photos because it might influence the jury. And I do feel so bad for the jury having to look at these awful photos. Can you? Oh. As the jury received the photos to look through, Many of them became emotional and when John's mother seen this, seeing the jury be moved, she too began to cry. The witnesses, or the Liverpool 38, 
took the stand. One by one, and confirmed the boy's route and location. It was found that many it was found that many of the Liverpool 38 changed their statements different from their original police statement, probably due to the guilt and shame they felt and the scrutiny from the media that they experienced. But the judge commented later that there was no way they could know what they were experiencing. They didn't know what they were witnessing. They didn't know they were witnessing James Bulger's final hours of life. You wouldn't assume something like that would become so horrific. John and Robert did not participate in the trial. They they did not take the stand and the court rarely addressed them. Although John and Robert's teachers did testify, as well as their psychiatrists and psychologists, who all agreed the boys did know right from wrong and would be able to know the severity of the crime they were committing. The prosecution admitted a number of exhibits during the trial. The CCTV footage, a box of 27 bricks, a blood-stained stone, James's bloody underpants, and the iron fish plate. The pathologist spent 33 minutes, outlined the 42 injuries. The brain damage and haemorrhage was extensive. One particular imprint on James's cheek was conclusively linked to Robert's shoe. This means he was an indisputable participant. Now remember, it's 1993, so there's no like DNA evidence which would have been like, bish, bash, bosh, done. But it was, st- it was still pretty much a slam dunk, this case. The court then played 20 hours of recorded police interviews. It was at this point that the boys paid attention to the trial. They paid close attention. They were curious about what did the other one say about them. They watched and listened as each one blamed the other. In the closing argument, the prosecution portrayed the boys as equally liable, highlighting the fact that avoiding detection was more important to them than James's well-being. The prosecution pointed out that both boys took turns in holding James by the hand and leading him around Liverpool, and both boys equally participated in the torture and murder. And then after the murder, Both boys equally lied to adults about the events of the day. Now, the defence didn't really stand a hope, but the defence said, neither of these boys has done anything violent before, only shoplifting and truancy. This was a mischievous prank gone wrong. Like, I don't think that's going to fly. After a three-week trial, jury began their deliberation. My back. And the verdict, verdict, and the verdict, the verdict came in that afternoon. For the first time, Denise was in the courtroom. As expected, the now 11-year-olds, Robert Thompson and John Venables, were found guilty on all charges, becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. John sobbed while Robert sat, staring, motionless. The judge addressed the boys calling them 
evil, barbaric, merciless, cunning and wicked. He sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure until they have matured and are fully rehabilitated and no longer a risk to society. The judge recommended a minimum term of eight years. Now, this eight-year sentence sort of went back and forth a few times. There was arguments that eight years did not reflect the severity of the crime. So it was bumped up to 10 and then it was bumped up to 15 years minimum. But then there was human rights arguments saying that they were too young to be given such a long sentence and it was reduced back down to eight years. In the end, they, they served about eight years, maybe like a few months over. But then the judge made a judgment that would snowball for the next few decades till now. The judge also ruled that the media was allowed to publish the boys' full names. I did this because the public interest overrode the interest of the defenders. There was a need for an informed public debate on crimes committed by young children. And debate there was. One side argued that exposure to violent video games might have encouraged the violent actions of Robert and John. Some British newspapers claimed the attack on James Bulger was inspired by the movie Child's Play 3, a film John's father had rented a few months prior to the murder. In one of the scenes, the Chucky doll has blue paint splashed on his face from a paintball fight. But it couldn't be determined if either of the boys had even watched the movie. There was a strong campaign in the UK that video nasties rules be tightened. One detective made a statement in regards to the 200 video rentals by the Venables. He said, you or I probably wouldn't want to see such things, but there is nothing in these movies where you can pinpoint, pause and say, that influenced the boy to go out and commit murder. Regardless of the debate, the rules for video, the rules for entertainment ages for children was restricted. Prime Minister at the time, John Major, said that society needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less, which is the usual argument heard over here, that we can't be a nanny state, because ultimately the root cause of Robert and John's violence was not video games, it was their home. It was their environment. It is, it is glaringly obvious that both children had been brought up in violence, impoverished environments with unstable and absentee parents. And it's easier to blame the kids. Maybe somebody should have checked on the kids and made sure that they were okay and weren't bringing their home life into the outside world. After the trial, Robert and John were held at separate and secret secure locations. The boy, the boy, the boys, vis, bleh, bleh. the boys' parents visited regularly. The boys were taught how to conceal their identity. 
their real names and the crimes they had committed. The boys received educational rehabilitation as well as education all the way up until their A-levels, which they apparently passed. It was noted that both boys suffered from PTSD, John in particular. But despite initial problems and setbacks, John was said to have eventually made very good progress in his rehabilitation. Or did he? And that is the end of episode two. In episode three, I will be covering the release of the two killer kids and the following shitstorm that cost the UK taxpayer thousands. Thank you again to our Patreon today, Kirsty, for requesting this case. It's going quite well, I think. How is my drawing? I haven't finished it yet. I hope it turns out okay. And also thank you Charlene Scott, from whom I took much of my resources. Slant!